Hello and welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. Omar Oaks here. And we often like to talk about the future of media, but now we actually have the future with us. <laughs> Dave Randall is with me. He's commercial director at Future, the publisher. Um, Dave Randall started at Future as head of commercial tech in 2019 before moving to commercial director in 2021. Previous roles include Taboola, Videology, uh, Unanimous, the exchange. Change Lab, um, lots of interesting places. And um, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure you all do know, um, Future is the international media publisher that's been around since 1985. And um, what I've got here, it says you've got over 200 brands. Is that correct, Dave? Magazines, newsletters, websites, events? We do. We do now. Yes. Thank you. And I'm very happy to be here. So everyone's been interested in Future for quite a while, but particularly in the last few years since um, you acquired Go Compare and been making lots of acquisitions all over the place. And maybe we can talk a bit about those brands and kind of what you've been doing with them. Mm-hmm. Um, have a, for, for the uninitiated, explain the strategy broadly around why the business bought Go Compare and what you've been doing since. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, Go Compare really is, um, I think, surprised a lot of people when we when we acquired the business. Um, Future, um, in essence, is quite an acquisitive business anyway. Um, we, as you said, started out as a publisher in the mid '80s, um, purely print. We started out in the uh, video games market. Um, and then gradually started to add what we call verticals onto that. So now we have a plethora of different verticals that link into those over 200 brands that you mentioned at the very start of this. So we have video games, we have technology, we have women's lifestyle, we have sports and music and uh, wealth and uh, country life, uh, country pursuits. So there's lots and lots of different types of brands that we have. And we've done that through effectively having a, um, a a focus on data and content at its heart. And obviously now Future is more than just magazines. We really are quite a digital first business. Um, and we're underpinned by technology and data to drive revenue across the media industry. So really our vision is to connect people with their passions and um, help them to do things that matter in their lives, I suppose. Um, and. Therefore, with Go Compare, it's slightly different to some of the other businesses that we've acquired over the last few years. So, more recently, we've bought uh, Dennis Publishing, TI Media, mm-hmm. What Culture, um, Who, What, Where is the latest one from a women's lifestyle point of view. But obviously, those are more traditional media brands, whether they are print focused or digital focused, they're media. And you can see that they sit within that uh, ecosystem that I was describing just now. Go Compare. It's slightly different, um, or very different, really. It's a part of the service industry. So what we've done by buying Go Compare is actually um, entered into the service market, which is great for us because it means that we're diversifying our business set. So we're not just considered to be a media company. There's other uh, arms or, or spokes, as we call them, uh, within the future wheel um, that gives us that diversity of our business. But Go Compare now moves us into the service industry. But what's really important about it is actually uh, it's still underpinned by data, and we can utilize that data to effectively drive uh, more data segments and drive advertising from a first-party data opportunity. So one of the reasons we bought it wasn't just to move into the service industry, but it was actually to utilize the data that can be collected from that and collected compliantly. Um, obviously, GDPR is a big thing, and we need mm-hmm. to make sure that we're collecting data in a compliant way, and Go Compare helps us to do that, and we can then integrate that data and utilize it not just for our customers on Go Compare, but for advertising and for e-commerce as well. 
I've got lots of questions for you about um, how that, what the implications have been for your your journalism, for trust in media broadly. Um, but just to pick up on that point, you mentioned GDPR around the end. I mean, <laughs> I was going to talk about um, the deprecation of third party ad cookies um, from Google. And I feel like I've been talking about this my entire career and it's never <laughs> happening. They're, they're kicking the can down the road. But let, let's assume that it is going to actually happen. Um, what, what does what does it mean for your business in terms of all the data that you're collecting, all this first-party data? Um, everyone's talking about having a, a data strategy after the cookie crumbles. Um, what's it going to mean for the businesses that advertise with you? Um, well, it's it, it's really useful for us, actually. So, one of again, if we go back to the acquisition of GoCompare and the work that we've been doing around first-party data, I mean, as you say, unless you've been living under a rock, um, it's pretty common that GDPR um, is a big deal and, and the data has to be legally compliant. So therefore, where the advertising industry over the last really 15 to 20 years has been relying on third-party cookies to um, to push data advertising, now those third-party cookies are depreciating and they could, as you say, crumble and become obsolete. Um, we wanted to make a step change as a business and really scan the horizons and see what was coming down the line. So us having a first party data strategy and platform is super, super important to us as a, as a business. And it's important for our brands and it's really important for our agencies and advertisers that work with us too, because they can now rely on us and do legitimate first party data targeting without worrying about cookies. And obviously, depending on what Google's decision is, they, they keep delaying it. They've delayed it again for another year. But for us, we feel that we've future-proofed ourselves, and pardon the pun there, but we, but we have by creating a product called Aperture. So Aperture is our first-party data product, and it's not something that we sell to businesses as a technology, but it's actually something that we put onto our media plans. So, for example, if you are um, a motoring client and you want to target um, people that are interested in uh, renewing their cars, we can do that because of the data insights that we have across the diverse business sets that we have at Future. Um, and we can do it compliantly, and we can utilize that data so that we can actually optimize it so that it works better for a return on investment and for the KPIs that the advertisers are looking to hit. So for us, it's really, really important, and it's been working. Um, it's been working so well, actually. We've just um, we've just won an award for it, um, mm. uh, which was really fantastic for us. Um, so yeah, we're very very happy about that. We won, I think, it was best data product for the ad exchanger. So so that's been great. And it's it's literally on the majority of the uh, any 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 digital campaigns that we that we have running. I think something like forty percent of them now have an aperture line on it. Um, and you can just see that from when we started the soft launch this time last year, we had a couple of advertisers that came on and started to use it. And they, they keep using it. And the results are speaking for themselves. So it becomes a, a regular booker, which is really pleasing for us from a revenue perspective and from you know, a performance perspective as well for the clients and the campaigns that we have running. Yes. And that launched last year. Um, what have you learned um, since the launch of that? And um, has it developed in ways which maybe you didn't set out to? Is it kind of evolving? Yeah, it, it really has actually. And um, what I was surprised about was that typically when you're talking about data and, and um, targeting of data, uh, you talk about refining your scale, but actually what we found is that our scale has increased. And the reason for that, I think, is because we can now target areas of the internet legitimately that maybe we couldn't do beforehand. Because if you think about it, 
Firefox and Safari, so that Mozilla and Apple effectively don't run third-party cookies. So mm-hmm. in the past, we didn't really, really understand this, but um, until we turned it on. But actually, now we're we're targeting more than uh, something like forty percent more of the open web than we could previously. So it hasn't affected our scale poorly. It's really affected our scale brilliantly, um, which means that we actually have more avails out there as a result of this product. And when you have more scale, you can optimize more efficiently too. So um, you know, we're seeing like 50 to 70% increases in click-through rates on the campaigns that we run with it. And um, I think the biggest surprise really was just how many advertisers are utilizing it. We've got over 450 advertisers already running Aperture segments on their campaigns. And um, a really good example actually is the motoring clients that I mentioned beforehand. So uh, we don't have a motoring vertical. We don't have any brands really that um, they're affiliated with cars. Um, from a digital perspective, at least, um, and yet we're we're seeing ten times the amount of campaigns from motoring clients as a result of the data targeting that we can do. Because obviously, lots of people drive cars, and lots of people interact with the portfolio of of brands that we have, and and that's really powerful for us because we can target them depending on whether they're looking for new car insurance or whether they're looking to buy a new car or, or whatever it might be. Um, it's it's kind of amazing. Future doesn't have any car brands in that this this big portfolio that you have. I know. Um, w- would you like one? Would it make your job easier? Uh, do you know what? That I'm going to sidestep that question because we have <laughs> <laughs> we, we have an exec team that make those decisions, and we have uh, a very good uh, M and A team that that are there to to make those decisions. And they haven't done that so far, so I don't know why. Um, but uh, as certainly from a commercial director's point of view, if if they were to acquire something like that, I would be very happy. Mm. Um, and um, it's it's really interesting to to hear about different media owners and their their, their post cookie strategies, if I can put it that way. Um, a lot of other media owners talk about having data clean rooms where you know um, advertisers can mix their first party data um, with yours in a GDPR compliant way. How come you're not going down that route? Uh, it's not that we're not. We can, and I think that um, if any of our advertisers wanted to. Um, investigate that with us, and then we would be very open to doing it. I think what's interesting around um, around clean rooms, in particular, is that it's it's really collaborative, and um, it means that you're matching data sets between an advertiser and a publisher, and that's something that we're more than willing to do. Um, but I think it's very much in its infancy at the moment, unless um, you're a walled garden or maybe a broadcaster. Um, my understanding of it is that. Uh, emails are really important to clean rooms and therefore you have to match your set of emails with another. Um, So therefore, when you're doing that, um, you need to do it in real time and that could be a problem with scale right now. So so that's one of the reasons that I think the industry hasn't really kicked on with it. But from a from a data perspective, it's something that we can actually do and would be willing to do right now. And we've had a few conversations with clients around um, starting those. Um, so yeah, it's not it's not that we're not doing it. It's actually something that we could do alongside what we do with Aperture. Mm, interesting. Watch this space. Okay. Yeah. Um, and more broadly, I wanted to ask you about the issue of trust. And um, you know, as a, as as listeners will know, I've mentioned this several times. Um, trust in media is one of the issues that the media leader um, is going to champion in 2023. Really important alongside the ongoing talent crisis and sustainability. Um, but as regards trust in media, you've in future you've come out with a recent report which is actually extraordinary. Um, well, we can perhaps do a link in the show notes to it. Um, and one of the findings is only fifty percent, half of global audiences trust the media they consume. Um, yeah. A lot of stats banded around, but you know it's just a very stark number. 
Why do you think this is? Yeah, that's that's actually not one of our stats either. We we found that independently. But um, I, why do I think it is? I, I think it's because of what's happening right now in our industry. I I personally think that we're at an inflection point, um, and what's going on within our industry right now, whether that be from a social point of view, TV, specialist websites, newspapers, it's there's big step change happening. And just like generations ago, when the printing press uh, came out, that was a big step change of how humans consumed media. You know, the telegraph, the radio, that was a big change. Television was a big change, changed the way that we interfaced with each other. And now we have new technologies coming through that's changing everything again, because I think this time around, what we need to really consider is that anybody can write anything and it's not edited so there's no editors for the Mm. masses necessarily which is huge in terms of how fundamental it is to the way that we can consume media so of course everybody's wary about what's being written but also individuals themselves are more aware of what sells and if legitimate news and information is presented in the same way as illegitimate news then how can you see the wood for the trees if you're just a a user of of media or anybody on the planet really that is engaging with media so so i can understand it from that point of view i don't necessarily think it means that there's untrustworthy media out there and everyone's fearful of everything but it just means that it's become murkier as a result of the technologies that that we have in place yeah and even um you know we we've been very mindful of it since the start we we rebranded to the media leader we 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 were part we were called mediatel news up until mm. february of 2022 and the name the media leader it really i've not actually expressed this publicly before but it really does kind of to to your points um you Readers need to trust that there are editors and professionals that are looking at the content. And the whole idea of the, the, the idea of leadership is really to communicate to the market that we're not just kind of, you know, like some publications, which are just kind of putting out a lot of unedited stuff, like a user-generated platform, that actually leadership and professionalization really matters. Just the word leader, right? It gives you that integrity and it shows that you are professionally producing this content and it's something to be trusted. I think that's that's yeah. absolutely integral to what you do. Yeah. Um, so, so we're going to talk our own books here. <laughs> but, um, also, but also in this report, I mean, um, it is fair enough. I mean, um, specialist interest websites, as obviously Future does a lot, actually ranks quite highly um, when it comes to trust ratings alongside TV, actually. Yep. And um, to your point, actually, you know, people appreciate that a huge amount of compliance goes on with broadcast television. Um, so we're going to kind of, <laughs> uh, so it's in our interest, let's just kind of lay that out there. But more, more generally, um, can you explain why you think different media scoring higher and lower in the eyes of consumers? I think so. Um, obviously, when it comes to social media and news, there's more contentious elements to that. And so news, mm. in, by its very nature, can be political. Social media is more focused on user generation, and um, and therefore that can mean that users are a bit more wary about it. Whereas television has more of a long-standing nature of entertainment and information, and there's you know broadcasters are held to impartiality um, from from their codes of conduct, right? And it's but it's the same thing with specialist websites. Although I don't necessarily think that the two are too too much aligned. 
Um, we at Future, as, as well as any other specialist website um, publisher, have to adhere to Ipsos and an editor's code. And we have, uh, you know, committees of advertising practices and advertising standard agencies that we have to abide by. So all of that stuff is in place. But I think fundamentally, the nature of our business and what's baked into our DNA is the fact that we have journalistic integrity. And um, that's at the core of what we do. Uh, so not only does it help us because we're impartial and we review products and that's the other thing there's a lot of products that we review it's not necessarily about like war or politics or um you know gossip it is do you like this thing or are you interested in this genre and we want to talk about that and connect with a passionate audience base based around the things that they love so when they come to us it's almost like um we're pushing them in the right direction and don't forget, for the most part, people come to Futures websites in particular. They'll buy our magazines on the shelves because they're interested in that magazine and that genre or that category. But typically when they come to our websites, there's another element to it, which is that they come because they want to buy something and they're searching for something. So something like 70, over 70% of people come to Futures websites because they've typed in, I want to see a new TV or what's the best makeup or, um, you know, uh, I'd like to buy this country mansion, <laughs> whatever it might be. <laughs> I mean, I wish, I wish, I wish. But, uh, but um, it means that therefore they're quite far down the purchase funnel of what they're looking to to integrate with or, or purchase or buy or invest in. Um, and that means that we have a real uh, responsibility to make sure that they're making the right decisions and help them along the way with the decisions that they make. And not only that, but there's, I don't know if you've heard of this, but we, we work quite closely um, and obviously uh, because of search rankings and Google and how important that is, we, we look at EAT, which is expertise, authority, and trust. And that's become a critical factor by which Google effectively evaluates and ranks brands and indexes brands out. So not only is it important to us to be journalistically um, uh, having that journalistic integrity, but it's also really important for the way that we're ranked within Google, which helps our audience numbers. So it's really across the board, like super, super important that we have all of this compliance and independence and transparency in place. And how do you ensure that um, that that probity? Um, because obviously, you know, um, you've got paid for content, you've got um, editorial content. I mean, um, I I will quite often myself be searching around the internet for best TV. Um, not that I'm actually going to buy a TV. I just fantasize <laughs> about it. That's, that's my life. Um, best TV, um, best product, and very often I'll end up at a website like Tech Radar. Um, so you're very good at pulling me in, but how do I know that you're just not being paid to promote this particular Samsung or LG TV and that's why it's at the top of the, your rankings? Yeah, so we, so we have to label it if it's an adver advertisement, um, whether it be sponsored content or an advertorial. And typically the, the difference between the two is an advertorial is literally like a, a branded piece of writing that comes directly from the brand. So like you say, if, if Samsung wanted to do something like that, they would pay a certain amount of money, give us the content that they've written. We would obviously then check it to see whether it's whether it, we think it's okay, but it would be labeled across the board. This is a Samsung advert and it's, you know, it would sit on there as an advertisement. And then we have sponsored content, which is that they've actually paid for us to review something and we would label that as sponsored content. 
Um, so it's very, very clearly labeled on there. Um, and then the rest of it, which isn't labeled, is that impartiality and, and just the reviews that we have from our journalists. Um, I guess I would flip that on its head, actually, because what we've found, though, is that we, some, we lose money as a result of our integrity from our journalistic point of view. And um, you mentioned when I first joined Future, I was the uh, head of the technology vertical, which meant I was mm. looking after the team that um, sells onto TechRadar and T3, What Hi-Fi, Tom's Guide. Um, and we would often do reviews for products. And sometimes those reviews were not five stars. And uh, those brands did not like that, which mm. would then become quite a problem if you're going to sell to those brands and say, hey, would you like to advertise on our sites? So, um, you know, that actual integrity has has caused me some financial problems <laughs> um, into hitting those targets in the past, but it's something that we have to continue to do. And um, it's not within my remit. And, and I would be um, literally shoved out of the room if I went to ask somebody to change a review in order to get revenue through. It's just not how we work here. What about the, the softer chilling effect? I mean, um, you know, I would say, um as an editor myself and obviously i'm not immune i'm not um insensitive to commercial um ambitions of the various businesses i've worked in but um obviously you know there'll, there'll be conversations in the background about you know whether you know even whether advertisers should be given a heads up if there is a, a negative review of something i mean how 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 does it work kind of internally when kind of um so there's so much emphasis on product reviews and kind of what you know writing about these kind of big consumer products big you know very important to you commercially as well um how how, how do you ensure that kind of church and state if i could put it like that yeah so we um it's it's difficult to do so therefore we well it what's what's difficult to do is to understand how many different reviews are coming from the various different brands that we have so from a commercial point of view we don't necessarily engage with the with the journalists about the reviews that they're doing. But what we do is we talk to them about what's coming up. So so mm. actually our engagement with editorial is around the zeitgeist of the moment. Or um, So for tech, it's huge in, in the US right now. CES is going to happen in, in January. So there's a lot of work that we're doing to work around CES and the different products that could be released over in the commercial electronics show. Um, but because there are so many different brands within our tech portfolio, it's it's almost impossible for us as a tech team to be able to know exactly what reviews are coming out on which one. And it may well be that somebody in what Hi-Fi has given uh, a Philips TV a five-star review, but somebody in T3 has given it four. So really, it's it's almost a case of us saying, look, you know, you do your thing over here, and then we're going to speak to the client over here because a promotion is not the same as a review. And we just need to keep very, very clear around that. We also have... Um, Within our corporate responsibility, we have uh, four pillars of responsibility, and one of them is around um, you know fake news and information. Um, but the other is we have a, a, a responsible content framework, which is literally a document that we have that everybody reviews and it's uh, shared internally. And we have a responsible commercial framework that we're writing out to. So both of those things give us the you know the boundaries and the the frameworks to work within in order to make sure that like, church and state are kept separate to use your term. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting conversation that frankly doesn't get talked about enough, actually, um, in media, talking about media, because, you know, this idea of complete separation between church and state, as we call it, 
doesn't really exist in any sophisticated operation. Um, you know, you obviously there are important boundaries, and we just talked to about how your business does it. Um, but you know, frankly, you know, you, any good advertiser, B two B advertiser, would have to understand um, that editorial integrity is paramount. Otherwise, no one's going to respect the brand and you just been seen as this, you know, pay to play operation. Um, and no one's really going to engage with that content. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, the we're, it's, it's I, I would imagine, I would hope that the majority of the premium publishers that we're, um, that our, our competitors and our bedfellows are, you know, talking about these things with accuracy and fairness and, you know, having procedures in place for corrections and amendments and apologies and complaints. And we, we have an ethics committee. I'm actually a part of the ethics committee. Um, and editorial independence and honesty and reviews. And it's all there, but... Um, but that links in, as you say, because on the same page, there might be an e-commerce link that sends somebody through to go and buy a product. And that actually is beneficial for the consumer if it's, if it's done in the right and correct way. So we have to make sure that that is very, very delicately, but properly done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dave, really appreciate you um, coming on to the show. Um, just final question. I'm, I'm asking this to everyone who I'm interviewing on this podcast. Uh-huh. How did you get into media um it's it, it seems like everyone's come through different routes mm. and um i'm really interested in how did you get into this business and what advice would you have for people who may be considering a career in media generally or specifically media sales yeah so i didn't start out in sales i started out in operations so um god this is taking me back and i don't want to share the year that it was but um my first job was at Ask Jeeves. So that might give you some indication. Wow. Of, of, uh, you you yeah. worked for Jeeves. I did, yes, yes. I was, I was a traffic manager um, for, or a traffic coordinator, I think it was my first job for Ask Jeeves. And so I started out um, at that business. But if I'm being brutally honest, I wanted to be a web designer when I left university. And I thought, wow, web design's the thing. And then I interviewed at a couple of companies and saw web designers and they all had headphones and they weren't talking to each other. And I thought, Ooh, that's, that's not a bit of me. <laughs> uh, I, as you can probably tell, I, I like to chat. So, for the benefit um, of the listener, we're both wearing headphones and talking to each other on the computer. So. That is true, yes. But we're not listening to music and coding which is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is the different thing i think i was quite naive when i left university to think what an exciting thing web design would be um, and then i actually applied for uh roles and um uh in in the internet industry and internet media because it was called new media at the time and i think i found the uh the the opportunity in the publication new media age if you remember that um, mm. That was a while mm. back. And then I started, I, I joined and was trafficking ads and basically putting up display ads. And then, um, and it went from there really. And as, as my career went on, I um, found that and this, uh, this has been really helpful for me as I've gone through my career. But knowing how the product works and what the product is, is so important if you're looking to sell something, right? So typically what I like to do is understand how the machine works, you know, how the sausage gets made, so to speak. Because if you can do that, then you're never tripped up and you're never winging it. Um, hmm. So having those fundamentals around the tech has always been really important to me because if you can do that and then explain that in layman's terms to somebody that might not understand it, then that will get you far. Um, but yeah, I, I actively wanted to do web design and then thought, no, culturally, I'm more into the ops and, and commercial side of things. And that's how I've ended up here. 
Yeah, um, yeah, great advice. I would say really kind of get to know kind of um, the nuts and bolts of whatever business you're in, and if it's media, yeah, finding out kind of how how things actually work. Um, Dave Randall from Future, thank you so much for coming on the Media Leader Podcast. Thank you, Omar. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. And there's more of where that came from on our website. The-media-leader.com is our website. You can sign up to our daily newsletter in the UK and weekly roundup of media in the US. You can also find us on YouTube where we are posting video interviews and clips from our live events, our LinkedIn page where people like to comment on the things that we're posting and Twitter where all our stuff is pretty much pumped out like a beautiful fountain of media industry content. That's it. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.